0: All the racial stuff and everything else that they want, changing history and all that, they, I guess the Peter's worth the money just to send them there. So That's what's so
1: going to continue to are going to continue to have more yeah. people in public schools right. for the
0: going until I have to sit. As tired as I am, I might uh, conk out today. You know how to do that?
2: (laughs) Well,
1: it says it's
0: 71 on We have more people okay right i don't want you to jared set it up to about 73 so i hope we get more, and more show up because we have a lot of roots in Isn't
3: this, this is so awful but you're worth it Good morning. good morning. Good to see you all this morning on this beautiful, hang on, okay, we're good. <laughs> on this beautiful Sunday morning, boy, a little relief from that heat this week, huh? Wow, no, that is so nice, so pleasant. Laura and I were having coffee in front of the door, the wall and the cool breeze was coming in this morning, and I'm like, I don't want to say it, but fall may be on its way, not yet. In your bulletin, uh, a reminder about your offering envelopes in the offering box, of course. Andrea's number for the prayer chain. Uh, Our Days of Praise and Acts and Facts are here. I think I announced that last time. That's what this one looks like. And I'm sure you're aware, but today uh, will be our communion service. Um, So as per our tradition, a short break and then regather uh, when you hear the music. And then after the communion service, a fellowship, uh, in the fellowship hall, uh, a dinner is planned. A reminder that um, there's a basket down there somewhere. Uh, If you could throw a couple dollars in there to help with the expense of some of the food items, that would be great. Um, Anything else today? I see we have some visitors. Welcome. All right then. Uh, Let me direct you to the scripture for meditation, which is found in Hebrews, and the seventh chapter, read 11 through 28, 1869. stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we meet around this word. Ed, can I ask you to open for us today? Great. Thanks.
0: Here's a photograph. I approach you humbly and request that
2: your Holy Spirit would just enthrall
3: the pastor's message this morning in our hearing that those of us who you have chosen will be to rectify it towards your glory, and that those who you are still to choose will in this service hopefully be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for this place of worship, so the
0: love that bonds you, your love abounds here. Pray for our country, our service people,
3: who in which our dire need. Lord, in your holy spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Take your red trinity, trinity hymn notes, we'll be in chapter number 3. new so thank you we're gonna have Jared play it through once because it's new Did tell me, and I forgot it's in the brown. Yes, in I know 569, yes, 569. In the he said it, and I remembered it until he stood up, and then it was gone. 569 in the brown.
2: Most of you should have this memorized. <clears throat>
3: through 24. So Genesis 14. That's page 20.
2: Stand with us, please. Genesis 14
0: his return from the defeat of Chedor, I'm going to trip on that one. Forgive me. (laughs) And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat. That is the king's valley. And And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, Professor of Heaven and Earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, Professor of Heaven and Earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Einer, Eshal, and Mamre take the, their share. May God bless the reading of this word. Amen.
2: You take your brown hand and turn to number 289, 289 in brown.
1: Can you all hear me? Okay. Our text of scripture today is Genesis 14. In our last study together, we considered the aftermath of Abraham's just war. What do I mean? Well, he mustered his own servant militia, and he rescued Lot from captivity along with all the people of the plain cities and their goods. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, pronounced a benediction on Abram for his faithful work. When it came to dividing the spoils of war, Abram refused to accept any of the recovered goods. Firstly, because he had lifted his sword to the Lord and not for material gain. And secondly, he did not want the king of Sodom to boast that he had made Abram rich. That would have robbed God of his glory. It's interesting to see get into his mind and to see how he's thinking. You need to do that. Abram's fight was a just fight. The land he was called to protect was under his jurisdiction by God's grant. The Syrian Federation had come to rob and rape and pillage. Women and children, as well as righteous lot, had been captured. They were being hauled off to Syria. Likely never to be seen again. So Abram could not sit by and just let that happen. Not when he had the means to fight back and prevent it. Still, I mean, his militia was comprised of his own household servants. 318 all total, but hardly a match for the armies of four kings. He trusted God, however, by faith to give him the victory, and that is exactly what God did. We learn... That because God is the granter of all blessings received, our thanksgiving demands a sacrificial response. Instead of Abram taking of the spoils of war, he gave tithes of all that he had, things he had won. He gave tithes of that to Melchizedek, the priest. Secondly, we learn that the world always benefits from Christians who live out their faith. We are reminded by the Lord Himself that believers are the salt of the earth. We are the preservative that stays the hand of God from falling in judgment. But I have to say, the day is coming when we will be gone. And along with our absence, the judgment of God will commence. So we're kind of in this wait period. Today's study focuses on this mysterious character named Melchizedek. As we come to our study, let's ask for the intervention of our God. O Lord, whenever we open the sacred pages of the Scripture, we are reminded that the words of the Scripture are indeed your words. This history is your history. Yes, a human author, Moses, sat down and penned the words, but he was moved and inspired by the Spirit of the living God. And he was under obligation to write exactly what you wanted to be revealed. And that's wherein we take our understanding that Moses' words are really God's words to us. You did this marvelously throughout the Old Testament and in later times in the New Testament. You inspired, you gave men the power of the Spirit of God to understand the things of God and they took from your thoughts and they wrote them down for generations to come and here we are today centuries later able to read and understand by your Spirit the truths of our history and Lord we're called upon to be students of our history because God is still active on the basis of who he is. And the history is unique in that this is a divine reckoning of what occurred. This is not man sitting down and writing out his philosophy of history. This is Moses under inspiration of God's spirit writing down the thoughts of God. We're thankful for that. So we have a sure word. We have the word of God made known to us that we might be blessed, that we might be saved, that we might be encouraged to serve you all the more. Now give us of that mystery of truth and teach us of Jesus our Savior the creator of the universe. In Christ's name, amen. Our text today, in the book of Genesis, is dealing with this unique character called Melchizedek. And I think he's a mystery figure. And by mystery figure, Mystery in the biblical sense of not much being disclosed about him. I mean, he just pops up on the scene out of nowhere, our text. And then just as mysteriously, he fades out of history until he's revisited by the writer of Hebrews. And one other time, referenced by King David In Psalm 110, verse 1 and following of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of your battle. The Lord has sworn and you will not change. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. So by piecing these three accounts together, a picture begins to emerge about Melchizedek, which puts some flesh and muscle on the bony skeleton that's portrayed in our text. The first thing we encounter is in the name Melchizedek itself. We've learned in our study of biblical characters that their names <coughs> Excuse me. Their names have meaning. So what can we learn about the name Melchizedek? Well, the first thing we can learn is that it's not a name at all. It's a title. It means King of Righteousness, or more literally, My King is Righteous. Same applies to our Savior as well, whom we call Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surname like (coughs) Jones <coughs> We might speak of a man named Walter Jones. Jesus is a proper name, Yeshua, Old Testament name Joshua, meaning savior. But the word Christ is a title, not a name. And the title means the Anointed One.
4: Anointed by whom? Well, Jesus Christ.
1: In modern day parlance, we skip the translation and we just say Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. speaking of him as though having a surname, but it's not a surname. The name holds true with Melchizedek. It's not a name at all,
4: but fully a title. King Can- righteousness. Identify. We know its character, yeah.
1: But we do not know who he is. And the writer of Hebrew puts it this way. I'm reading from Hebrew 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings. And he blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, I'm still reading
4: scripture. First, his name means king of. Of Salem. Means king of peace.
1: Without father. Without genealogy. Without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Hebrews 7, first three verses. Wow. We read this and we say, how can a person be a person and not have any roots? On Ancestry.com, people do
4: searches in the electronic archives of their relatives
1: and to see if there is any information on the migration of their family. So, why do they do this? Well, they're trying to
4: discover their roots. Connection to a nationality or a
1: race or to the family patriarch or matriarch. And it gives a sense of belonging, of purpose. the family trade Smith for example is an abbreviated rendering of blacksmith, a person who works with metal later that was shortened Smith down by the corral and he can replace your horse's missing shoe the smith. But none of this applies to the title Melchizedek. We learn that he's a righteous man, yeah, but nothing of his ancestry. In fact, we are told he had no father, he had no mother, not literally, of course, but without a genealogy, there's no way to ascertain his ancestry. And you know, the Bible is very big on genealogies. Very big. Jews were all embroiled with where they came from, how they could connect their family with that family, with that family, with that family, and trace it back as far as they could make it go. Same holds true for the second title, verse 18 of our text. King of Salem. The writer of Hebrews gives the translation. Hebrews 7 verse 2. King of Salem means. King of peace. Earlier called Shalem. Shalom. Are you getting it? A word indicating. Completeness, hence peace to be at rest, because the work is done. It is a very early name for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jeshurah is an early aim, early name for Israel found in Deuteronomy 13 and verse 15. Meaning the upright one. Used there, however, in a state of rebellion, but in righteousness and peace were wedded together. So these two
4: titles, King of Righteousness, Which identifies
1: Melchizedek as priest of the Most High,
4: indicates that Melchizedek. What do you mean by type? Well, a type in old is an Old Testament model through his priestly work of atonement for sin.
1: For example, of the promise that as an adult, his administration will be characterized as a reign of, quote, justice and righteousness, Isaiah 9, or 7. And that one of his names will be Prince of Peace, verse 6 of Isaiah 9. can be no other way. There is no peace where there is injustice and unrighteousness that rule in the land you have to have righteousness and justice for peace to be but everything good comes to people living under the rule of righteousness we see in our day and it's
4: been historically true throughout various nations They continue in the very wickedness which destroys
1: all semblance of peace. So how genuine are they? Well We see this in
4: the Islamic attacks of present-day terrorists who jihad holy war. Is anything but peaceful.
1: A righteous and just rule to the land. There's no other way. Christ Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Now that brings us, secondly, to consider some of the characteristics of superiority of melchizedek and these are found in hebrews 7
4: first thing we discover is that there In front of the word father, no father, a mator, no mother. Terms that are used for orphans. They are used for children of unknown origin. Now they have parents. There's no public registry, verse three, without. And this is very, very odd. The man holds a high civil office. Verse 18. Priest of
1: God Most High. So how does an unknown
4: person with no person such an influential position?
1: Because the Jews were fastidious about record keeping. They counted heads in every aspect of life the tribes, the military service, their families, their vocations, and so on. And our Bible
4: our Bible contains many such genes. Uh, to their homeland rather and Nehemiah 7 lists all the categories of the re- end of the list of priests and all the numbers
1: of families that were named we learn only records but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood of a certain group. In verse 64, no genealogy, you can't serve. We can't prove that you're part of the priesthood. Whoa. They could say, well, yes, we are. Uh, you know, you can talk to Uncle Saul. You <laughs> You can talk to my employer. They'll tell us that I was serving as priest. No genealogy. No service. Yet here we are in Genesis 14 with a man named Melchizedek, who from Hebrews 7, we learn, has no record of a father, no record of a mother, no genealogy at all, yet he serves as priest of God Most High. Whoa, what gives? Something's wrong here. Look carefully at Hebrews 7, verse 3, where the writer says of Melchizedek that he is like the The Greek word emphasis
4: emphasizes to be made like or to be molded. ESV, resembling the
1: Son of God. Say, well, what's the point? Well, in biblical typology, we considered characteristics in a person that point to some characteristic of Christ. For example, David, whose kingdom was advanced through Solomon, he was promised, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever second samuel 7 verse 13 but david died as did solomon he died all the heirs until we come to jesus genealogy which portrays him as david's descendant and isaiah writes prophesying of this child of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end he will reign on david's throne oh over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, verse 7. Hence, we conclude that David was a type of Christ because the promises made to him are fulfilled in the coming King, Christ, Christ Jesus an earthly king over God's people. Typifying the kingship of Jesus over God's people. And in all this, David is the model or the type of the coming Christ. Now, what we have in Hebrews 7 verse 3 is the di- direct opposite. So what do you mean? Well, Christ... And his priestly ministry is not patterned after Melchizedek. But verse 3, Christ is the pattern for Melchizedek. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Wow. Wow. That is why there's no record of parentage. That's why there's no record of genealogy. He's made like the Son of God. What do we know about the Son of God? His divinity. Well, whatever the scripture says. But there's no genealogies and all of that business. Not in his divine nature. So that's the first thing about Melchizedek. He certainly is a mystery character. Secondly, his virtue and characteristics of Melchizedek, it says, without beginning of days or end of life, and again, we read this, made like the Son of God. Notice that the writer of Hebrews is referencing Jesus in his pre-incarnation day. Not as the little baby born to Mary and Joseph, Though that's true too. But if we're going to talk about Jesus as a human being, we do know he had a birthday and a dying day, as is true for all human beings. It's only in his true nature as the Son of God that we can speak of Jesus as without beginning of days or end of life. From which Melchizedek has been modeled. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, has no beginning, he has no end, he is eternal. That's deity. Melchizedek, to whom Jesus' priesthood is attached, is portrayed by the writers of Scripture as having no father, no mother, no genealogy whatsoever. Christ alone is eternal, having no beginning, no end. So if Melchizedek is to represent Jesus' priestly work, his human genealogy and ancestry must remain in the dark. And it does. It does. We don't know much about Melchizedek. Jesus is priest of God Most High, but he is so as the Son of God. As the Son of God. Emphasis on his deity, not his humanity. There's a third characteristic to Melchizedek. He remains a priest forever, verse 3. That's strange. A priest forever? How unusual it is for a priest to hold his office forever. We say that's impossible because priests are just like any human being they get old and they die. This is true, and the writer of Hebrews devotes some time saying the same thing. But in so doing, he speaks only of the Levitical priesthood. That's interesting. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 11. It says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still a need for another priest to come One in the order of Melchizedek. So you see what's being argued here. If we already have a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, why is there still a need for another priesthood? That's not in the order of Aaron, Hebrews 7 verse 11. Well, there's two major problems with the priests who came from the tribe of Levi. Problem number one. They were all sinners. Trying to make atonement for other sinners. In Hebrews 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hmm. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant And are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3. May I say this is all we who minister, Brenner. It's all of us ministers. Sinners serving other sinners. That's what we are. No perfection in life. No perfection in service. Okay, but what's the standard from which God cannot relent? Let me read it for you from the lips of Jesus. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5. Verse 48. That's impossible for you. That's impossible for me. Be perfect? Whoa. It is impossible for everyone born into the human race. It is impossible for the Levitical, Levitical priests in their representative capacity. They too were sinners. That's the first problem of service. Priests that are sinners. How are they going to represent people before God when their own slate is stained with sin? Second problem as sinners. They all eventually died. (laughs) Hebrews 7 verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests. Since death prevented them from continuing in office. Seemed logical, right? Think about it. Death is the grim reaper who ends not only people's lives, but their service. Their work stops when their heart stops. And if we know anything about earthly life, we know that it is fragile and it's weak and it's temporal. James put it this way. What's your life? Asked James. I'll tell you. Here's what he says. You're a mist. M-I-S-T. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's what your life is. James 4 verse 14. Why is that? Because for the wages of sin is death. That's why. And you're a sinner. And all men are sinners. Romans 6 verse 23. So that said, we need a different kind of priest, don't we? We need a priest who, Hebrews 7 verse 26, is holy. Blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. In other words, he's not a sinner. Exalted above the heavens. Unlike, different from, we could say, the other high priests that were sinful priests of the Levitical line. He, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered himself. So Melchizedek represents this enduring priesthood because not only is there no record of his beginning, Hebrews 7, 3, there's no record of his end of life. No death certificate, no funeral, no burial, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now understand here that the writer of Hebrews is not portraying Jesus in his humanity but in his divinity. Though he referenced Jesus' death, his emphasis is on Jesus' life, and in particular, living forever. Thus, his priesthood is forever. Hebrews 7, verse 3. And that being the case, his work is eternal. Now that brings me to the implications of Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is unique. Number one, he stands superior to any earthly priest before God in his person. Hebrews 7 4 sets the stage for reflection. It says, just think how great he, Melchizedek, was. The writer of Hebrews says, Think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And that harks back to our text, Genesis 14, where Abraham paid the tithe of the booty he recovered in the battle against the Syrian Federation of Kings. How does Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek demonstrate? the superiority of Melchizedek priesthood. You ever ask that question? Verse 5. The law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people. This man, Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descendants from Levi Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him. Now without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. You see the logic here? Melchizedek must be a greater personage than Abraham because he's the one doing the blessing. He's the one collecting the tithe. Abraham is but the recipient of blessing. Make sense? Abraham's the one paying the tithe. It gets better, verse 9. One might even say that Levi, you know Levi's the head of the Old Testament priesthood, One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. You want some deep thought theology? We're getting into it here, aren't we? (laughs) What is the writer saying? He's saying, Levi and all his descendants were not even born yet, okay, when all this occurs. They weren't born yet, but they were present in seminal form, semen form, as the seed of Abraham. They were there. Now, we do not normally think of how the actions of others in the family affect us today in the future, but that is, that's how deep this author is going with his thinking. Suppose my grandfather had taken out an insurance policy on my children, my children, paid the premiums, signed the contract, registered it in a trust account before any of my kids were born. yet his actions would be credited to them when the policy paid out. They would owe their inheritance, their blessing to him, though done generations ago, before they were ever born. Say they can't do that. Oh yeah, they can do that. People do that kind of thing all the time. Do you see how logical this all is? It's rational. And the writer of Hebrews is asking you and me to just think. 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 Use your brains on how great Melchizedek was. Hebrews 7 verse 4. You're not being asked to accept all of this by faith alone but by piecing the historical facts together to arrive at a rational conclusion. Now, sure, faith has to be present because, as you know, the skeptics are going to come along and they're going to twist or denigrate the historical facts to discredit God's word. So faith is involved. But Jesus is the priest who supersedes any earthly priest, including those of Levi. Levi represents the lesser, paying homage to the greater person. And secondly, Jesus stands superior in his service to the priesthood, not only as a person, but in his service. What's the task of a priest? Hebrews 5 verse 1 answers. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters relating to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. For sins. That's what priests do. But as we've seen, every earthly priest is a sinner himself whose service before God is blighted by his own failures. So how can he help me in the end? His failure is accentuated by his death. Proving that sin nailed his coffin shut. So where's the hope in that? He's dead. He couldn't help himself. And we're, we're being asked to trust him to help us. The dead priest couldn't even help himself. So how's this service going to help me? The writer of Hebrews is arguing for longevity in the priest represented us because he believes that sustaining the blessing of atonement or salvation depends upon an ever effectual ministry. He's already paved the way for us to see this by demonstrating that Melchizedek is depicted in scripture as having no beginning of days, and no end of life, verse 3. That's the per- perpetuity going. Now, how probable is that with earthly priests? With earthly priests. Well, it's not only improbable, it's impossible. Because all men die. And when they die, that's the end of their service, that's the end of their influence. Over those they represent. And it is at this very point. Where the writer takes his stand. Verse 15 and following. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest. Not on the basis of a regulation. As to his ancestry. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever. Wow. And in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak, it was useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And the better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What's the better hope? Melchizedek, the living priest. That cannot die. Hebrews 7.15 and 5. Did you know that Jesus. As our high priest before God. Has a continuing ministry. On our behalf. We've all taken comfort. In Jesus words from the cross. When he said it is finished. But that statement addressed. The subject of atonement for sin and the finality of Jesus crosswork the writer of hebrews words it this way in hebrews 10:12 and following but when this priest jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy Hebrews 10, verse 12 through 14. But I say that atonement is only part of the priest's service. It's only part of it. God speaking through Isaiah foretold, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, that's atonement, For he bore the sins of many, that's atonement, and made intercession for the transgressors. There's the continuing work. Isaiah 53 verse 12. Look at verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7 verse 21. See, it's not just the cross. The cross deals with the finality of sin. But we keep on sinning, don't we? Yeah. There's the cross. There's the dead, dying Savior. But we have a living mediator between God and us. a mediator. He prays for you. He intercedes for you and me before the Father. The scripture says he always lives to intercede. He's like the incense in the tabernacle. The fire was never never permitted to go out. And if you know anything about the symbolism, the incense represented the prayer's Of the people going up to God. We have in our hymn book five bleeding wounds he bore, received at Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They ever plead for me saying, forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. It's not just the cross that saves, brethren. It's the intercession of Christ. Hard to say sometimes... The mystery of all this. Then lastly Jesus stands before. Us as a superior high priest. In that his priesthood was confirmed by an oath from God. Look at Hebrews 7, 19 and 20. A better hope is introduced. By which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Remember that? statement we read about all priests what they die right and when they die their service ends but not with Jesus not with him he has a permanent priesthood because he lives forever very strange don't you think that God would take an oath about anything but he does why would God take this oath Hebrews 6, verse 16 and following. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what's said, and it puts an end to all argument. Now that's the general statement about why people take oaths. Think of two people arguing and fighting over various things, and they don't believe each other. and The one guy's trying to convince the other one that he's telling the truth the other guy's kind of looking at him and rolling his eyes. <laughs> yeah, right. Finally, the guy that's trying to convince the other, he's had it up to here with the fact that the other guy's not believing what he has to say. So what does he do? Sometimes this happens. He takes an oath. As God is my witness, I'm telling you that. But da 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 The writer of Hebrews says, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, puts an end to all argument. Very serious to take an oath, by the way. He goes on, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this, I'm still reading scripture, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, What are those two things? His promise and his oath. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm, secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6 verse 16 through 20. And verse 13 states. God swore by himself because there is no greater authority than God. What's that mean? Well, you all know that when people take an oath, they say something like, as God is my witness, I'm telling you the truth. Well, who's gonna, who is God going to swear by to convince somebody that he's telling the truth? There's no greater authority than God, the creator and ruler of the universe. So the writer of Hebrews says, since there was no greater authority than God, God swore by himself. Wow. How many priests were there in the Levitical priesthood? Well, in the days of Moses, 22,000 according to Numbers 3, verse 39. In the days of the monarchy under David, before the captivity, 38,000, according to 1 Chronicles 23, verse 3. Why so many priests, whether you're talking Moses or Davidic time, well, verse 23, death prevented them from continuing in office. That's why. How many priests were in the Melchizedek order? That's not a trick question. How many were in the Melchizedek order? One. One? (laughs) Wait a minute. How can that be? Verse 24, Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. His cross work is eternal. His intercessory work is eternal. We only need one priest like that. Me, you, all of us in this room, all out in in internet land, indeed, all of mankind, will one day stand before this priest of the most high God to give an account of your relationship to him. you say, oh he's ju- he, he, wait, he's just a priest. Have you not been listening this morning? He is priest of the most high God. He is the king of righteousness and justice. So his priesthood has a ruling dimension to it. Jesus put it this way. The father has entrusted all judgment to his son. That all may honor the son as they honor the father. John. 5, verse 22. Paul puts it this way, we must all appear, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. What happens when you die and leave your body? Well, If you die in your sins without repentance, without trusting in Jesus alone for your intercessor and redeemer, Hebrews 10, verse 31, then the scripture says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But if you die washed in the blood of Jesus, atoning sacrifice of himself, then this one Melchizedek priest becomes to you King of Salem, Prince of Peace, and your death brings you face to face with your Savior, with a Redeemer, your Redeemer, your Advocate of Peace before God, and not a condemnatory judge. That's what. That's how precious, that's how much, how powerful Jesus' priesthood is. There's no priest like him. His priesthood ended all the Levitical priests. Boils all down to one priest. And he lives forever. And he intercedes on your behalf. What will it going to be for you? You have Christ as Savior. You can by trusting him. Our Lord, we pray that you will grant faith to us today. Help us to see the magnificence of Christ as priest. There's no priest like him. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Salem. I pray, Lord, that you will grant us faith in this Redeemer. May he become our advocate before God. May he not be our judge, but he will be our judge if we do not surrender to his wonderful, wonderful call to repentance and faith. Save whom you will today. Honor yourself. Help us to see we can't save ourselves. We need a priest. There's only one priest that stands before God and pleads the case of sinners successfully and that's you jesus that's why you came thank you for your redemptive work in jesus name we thank you we thank you amen our closing hymn is out of the trinity number 308 308 in Trinity.